This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's been authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you're now tuned into our board slash OIT hand review series. We hope that you all have been enjoying this. We hope that you all have checked out the podcast companion book. There's, we have a book that goes along with all of these episodes from the first episode a couple of years ago, but now we're continuing on hand, and today we're going to talk a little bit about some hand fractures, some metacarpal fractures, and without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And so what are some of the physical exam tests that can be used to diagnose lunotriquetral injuries? Because we did the scaphoid shift test for the SL injuries. What are the lunotriquetral injuries? Yeah, so this is going to be like the lunotriquetral shuck and shear test. It was basically like you're stabilizing the lunate, you're translating the triquetral palmar dorsal, and if that causes some pain or discomfort, that's going to be a positive finding. Also, arthroscopy is useful in diagnosing a lot of these wrist injuries and these ligament injuries. Now, what are some treatment options for lunotricutial injuries? Pretty much the same as scaphoid It's For these acute ones, you can do a ligament repair. And for the chronic ones, you can do a soft tissue reconstruction. If there's minimal arthritis, you can try some sort of tightrope slash anchor with sutures in the lunate and the triquetrum. But if there's arthritis, then you're looking more at some sort of fusion and wherever that arthritis is primarily is the kind of joints you're going to be wanting to fuse more. Obviously, you're limiting yourself in how much you want to fuse the radiocarpal joint because you want them to maintain as much flexion and extension as possible. So if you're able to just fuse the inner carpal bones, then that's great with some sort of four corner fusion versus if there's more kind of pancarpal or radiocarpal arthritis, then you're fusing the radiocarpal joint. And then what is the Mayfield classification used to describe? Yeah, we, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but we can go ahead and dive a little bit deeper into it. But this is going to describe perilunate instability. And typically, like the mechanism for these injuries is you have wrist extension, ulnar deviation, axial load, and then mid-carpal supination. I know that's a lot to think of in your head, but so maybe Googling a picture may help out. And we talked a a little bit about mechanisms earlier, but we talked about with ulnar impaction syndrome, you're going to have wrist extension and ulnar deviation. We talked about the scaphoid, you're going to have wrist extension and radial deviation. And then now with these kind of perilunate instability, still wrist extension, ulnar deviation, and axial load plus mid-carpal supination. I've seen a good amount of perilunate injuries in residency. I don't know why. No, I don't know why, but it happens, but it can be easily be missed. So what are these actually, what are these different stages? When you're looking at the Mayfield classification, what are different stages? 
Yep, so stage one is going to be scaphoid dissociation or a scaphoid fracture. So if the wrist is radially deviated during injury, you're likely to have more of a scaphoid fracture. Anterior and or I guess volar and dorsal ligaments are going to maintain that lunate position. All of these ligaments around the wrist, so you have like the long radiolunate and the short radiolunate ligaments are going to also play play a role in where the lunate is. And then you have the lunotriquetral ligament that's going to help. But so Mayfield one is scapholunate dissociation or a scaphoid fracture. A Mayfield two is a capital lunate dissociation. Mayfield three is a lunotriquetral dissociation or a triquetral fracture. And then Mayfield 4 is a lunate dislocation. Most commonly, this happens volarly because there's a natural gap in the traversing wrist ligaments, like the long radiolunate, short radiolunate, the radioscaphocapitate. Not a lot is really protecting that volar portion of the lunate, so it's going to want to pop out volar and sit in the carpal tunnel, unfortunately. These are more urgent slash emergent type of injuries that because you want to get the lunate out of the carpal tunnel to prevent median nerve compression. And so what is the treatment options for these perilunate injuries? Acutely, you want to try to close or reduce these. And uh, I guess the technique is somewhat similar to a distal radius fracture. Hang them up for a little while and then try to recreate the injury and reduce these. It does help to have, if your institution has a little mini CR, it helps to try to bring that in there and make sure you have it reduced and then you put it in some form of immobilization. But these can be very difficult to do. But ideally, you want to fix these early. You can go do a dorsal approach to fix the scaphalunate injury, and then you can add screws or wires across the scaphalunate interval, and you can do a volar approach to fix the lunotriquitrial injury and also address the carpal tunnel if you need to do like a carpal tunnel release if they have acute carpal tunnel syndrome or anything of that sort. Yeah, funny. Funny story, one of my chiefs, who is now one of my colleagues, he's a hand attending where I met and we were together in residency. He had a perilunate dislocation while on call. Not himself, he had a patient with one. He went to reduce it because it was a Mayfield 4. It was a pure lunate dislocation and he reduced it, but he got post-reduction post x-rays and the lunate was uh, was upside down. <laughs> <laughs> in the wrist. So yeah, obviously they were going to treat it with some sort of surgery regardless, but it was quite the interesting x-ray to see the next morning when the lunate was faced the wrong direction. So uh-huh. what technique is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he ended up going into hand and wrist. And so he's well-versed in treating those now. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh man. I think we've hammered the wrist a lot with these traumatic injuries. And we could move forward to some more just hand hand trauma. And then I think soon we'll probably be done with this trauma stuff. What are the deforming forces just seen in the metacarpal base fractures? Yeah, it, it's one of those things that whatever attaches to the base is what's going to cause that deforming force. The base of the second dorsally has the extensor carpi radialis longus. The base of the third has extensor carpi radialis brevis. And the base of the fifth has extensor carpi ulnaris. And the diaphysis is typically displaced proximally and ulnarly, especially with that fifth metacarpal fracture. And then what are some of the useful x-rays that you're going to evaluate these metacarpal base fractures with? 
Yeah, just oblique films. So you want to get your three views of, of the hand in those oblique films where you're about 30 degrees pronated or so can help you to see that those metacarpals. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. If you're an orthopedic resident, it's time to start building the foundation to be prepared for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leaders in the field to bring you the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program. Rock is an all-in-one online learning platform covering 11 subspecialties. You can access the content for free at rock.aaos.org. This platform delivers a comprehensive, structured, standardized curriculum and even includes self-assessment quizzes and performance analytics. And remember, residents never pay to access Rock content. Get started today at rock.aaos.org. Are, are CMC fracture dislocations associated with higher or lower energy mechanisms? Yeah, they are more the higher energy mechanism just because you're not only causing a fracture, but you're also causing a dislocation of very well-supported joints. The carpal metacarpal joints, are they have fairly robust volar and dorsal ligaments. And so in order for you to fracture the base, but also cause a joint subluxation or dislocation, it's a higher higher mechanism of injury. And what's the treatment for these metacarpal base fractures? Well, if there's not displaced, cast them. If they're displaced, fix them. Overduction in internal fixation versus some type of pinning. Cold reduction percutaneous pinning. Now, what is the acceptable angulation for metacarpal shaft fractures? Yeah, so metacarpal shaft should not be confused with metacarpal neck fractures. And I think of this as the more central metacarpals are more stabilized versus the more peripheral metacarpals. Like index and long finger, you can't really tolerate a very large angulation before the patient starts to notice it. So you're looking for a five to 10 degree angulation for acceptable for the index and long fingers. But when you go to the ring and the small finger, because there's more movement in those metacarpal bones, you can tolerate a 10 to 40 degree angulation for the ring and small finger. But what you really want to avoid is the rotation and the shortening. If there's rotation or shortening, that's when you get varying degrees of extensor lag and all of that sort of stuff. You do rely on the intermetacarpal ligaments, the interosseous muscles to help reduce that shortening, but shortening can still occur. And if you do deem these to be operative, either because of the angulation deformity or the rotational deformity, you can do open reduction internal fixation with plain screws. If it's high energy, you can do an intramedullary screw, like an intramedullary nail, or a simple K-wire fixation. But let's say you have a metacarpal shaft fracture, and you're looking at the patient, and they have a 7 to 10 degree extensor lag. How short is that metacarpal? Yeah, so about 2 millimeters of shortening is going to be associated with a 7 degree extensor lag. And I think I saw a question on this, too or they were mentioning at some point, but yeah, two millimeters of shortening is going to be associated with seven degree extensor lag. Now, moving forth, we're talking about metacarpal shaft. Now, what about metacarpal neck fractures? What's the acceptable angulation for a metacarpal neck fracture? 
Yeah, the closer you get to the metacarpal phalangeal joint, you can tolerate more angulation because that's where the joint is. So like the index and long for the shaft, it was only five to 10 degrees that you can accept. But at the metacarpal neck, you can accept up to 20 degrees. For the ring, it's up to 40 degrees. And for the small digit, it's up to 60 degrees. That's purely based on the amount of mobility that's at the metacarpal phalangeal joint. And what's the most common deformity that's noted with a metacarpal neck fracture? Yes, yeah, so this is going to be apex dorsal due to the pull of the intrinsics, which we talked a little bit about earlier, which basically affects at the MCP joints. So again, it's going to be apex dorsal. Now, what is the treatment for at least most metacarpal neck fractures? Yeah, most of the time they fall within that acceptable angulation, or you can at least close reduce them to fit within that acceptable angulation. So you're going to close reduce, and then you're going to splint or cast, and then start range of motion at three weeks. But because it happens so close to the joint, you're going to do a more ulnar gutter splint rather than just a volar slab. You want to immobilize both proximal and distal to the joint itself. So that ulnar gutter is going to go all the way across the metacarpal phalangeal joints, and it's going to stop at the uh, distal phalanx of the uh, digits. But there are some that do need surgery, and I'm sure that we'll talk about those in a bit. But what is the treatment of choice for patient who has a second metacarpal head fracture after punching someone and they have, and you see a small draining wound. Yeah. So you, again, you're worried about the fight bite, right? So this is the ones that you need to take back into an irrigation agreement on. And then if it's a displaced fracture, you may fix or you may not fix it. But the big thing you just don't want to miss is a fight bite because these can get infected. And then I think staph aureus is very common, but you also want to cover for Echinella. I think it's the, it's the organism which you're concerned about. Yep. Now, what is the most common direction for an MCP, metacarpal phalangeal joint dislocation? That's going to be dorsal. And the index finger is the most common MCP dislocation site, but uh, yeah, it's going to fall dorsal to the metacarpal. And how would you reduce this? Is it just a simple, just pull, high five, splint, and you're done? Or, or is there something a little bit more to it? It's just, it's just a little bit more to it. So again, it's a dorsal or a simple dislocation. You want to flex the wrist and fingers. And what this does is this helps relax the flexors. And you just push the proximal phalanx, just distal and uh, distal and dorsal. So again, you don't want to necessarily hyperextend and use traction and everything. You just want to relax those flexor tendons and you want to push that proximal phalanx, distal and dorsal. Say you have an MCP dislocation that doesn't reduce with closed uh, efforts. What may be the issue or may be stopping that dislocation? Yeah, it's typically the interposed volar plate and the unfortunate part of this, the reality is a lot of times the colleagues will, they'll just try that simple pull axial and try and get it out to length to reduce. But what that does is it actually creates a noose of the volar plate around the distal portion of the metacarpal. And it's really hard to reverse that noose once it's already been pulled into place. So if somebody's already tried that straight axial traction, it's really hard to get a reduction after that. 
what you need to do most of the time is need to go to the OR to remove the volar plate from blocking the reduction. And there's several approaches you can try. The volar approach obviously risks digital nerve and artery injury because it's right near that bifurcation as it goes into the radial and ulnar digital nerves. And then the dorsal approach can also be used, but the problem is the interposed volar plate. So the structure that's blocking your reduction is volar and you're trying to approach it from a dorsal aspect. So it, it is tough to visualize what you're trying to reduce, but sometimes just getting a freer in there and levering it up and over is enough to get that successfully reduced. Moving on to some phalanx fractures, what makes a phalanx fracture unstable? Yeah, so angulation greater than 10 degrees, less than 50% of apposition, greater than two millimeters of shortening or malrotation. These are all things that makes a phalanx fracture unstable and that you may choose to treat these with like pinning or open reduction internal fixation. Now there was an option for X-fix, but I can say I've never seen an X-fix used for a phalanx fracture. Maybe there are some areas that are doing that. I'm not sure. I'm not a, I'm not a hand specialist, but that is one of the treatment options. And stable fractures can typically be treated non-operatively, buddy tape, things of that sort. Now, what is the most common location for a PIP dislocation? Yeah, that's, again, it's dorsal. Just intuitively, when we tend to either brace for something or catch a ball or whatever, we tend to use the volar surface of our hand or the palmar surface of our hand rather than the dorsal surface. So anything that kind of hits the hand from a volar side is going to cause a dorsal dislocation more so than a volar dislocation. That's, I think that's the easiest way to think about it. And so it's once again, just like a MCP dislocation, a PIP dislocation is associated with a volar plate avulsion and similar things that you want to do is not pull straight on that for a reduction. You want to still do that kind of flexion and pushing action with your thumb rather than pulling action distally. And the problem with anything of the PIP and the DIP is stiffness occurs. Even if you get to this acutely and you reduce it and it reduces concentrically, that they most likely won't have a full, normal, complete range of motion. It may be painful for them at the extremes of range of motion. Thank you all for listening to that episode. We hope that you enjoyed it. We really hope that you did. We hope that you're subscribed by now. If you aren't, go ahead and hit the subscribe button and just share this with one person. If everybody did, that would help us out a bunch. And we will see you all next time.